Chapter 7, Part 2 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1 by Charles Mackay. The Magnetizers, Part 2. Besides these, several learned men, in different parts of Europe, directed their attention to the study of the magnet, believing that it might be rendered efficacious in many diseases. Van Helmont, in particular, published a work on the effects of magnetism on the human frame, and Balthazar Gratian, a Spaniard, rendered himself famous for the boldness of his views on the subject. The magnet, said the latter, attracts iron. Iron is found everywhere. Everything, therefore, is under the influence of magnetism. It is only a modification of the general principle which establishes harmony or foments divisions among men. It is the same agent that gives rise to sympathy, antipathy, and the passions. Baptista Porter, who, in the whimsical genealogy of the weapon salve given by Parson Foster in his attack upon Dr. Afluctibus, is mentioned as one of its fathers, had also great faith in the efficacy of the magnet, and operated upon the imagination of his patients in a manner which was then considered so extraordinary that he was accused of being a magician, and prohibited from practising by the court of Rome. Among others who distinguished themselves by their faith in magnetism, Sebastian Verdig and William Maxwell claim a special notice. Verdig was professor of medicine at the University of Rostock in Mecklenburg, and wrote a treatise called The New Medicine of the Spirits, which he presented to the Royal Society of London. An edition of this work was printed in 1673, in which the author maintained that magnetic influence took place not only between the celestial and terrestrial bodies, but between all living things. The whole world, he said, was under the influence of magnetism. Life was preserved by magnetism. Death was the consequence of magnetism. Maxwell, the other enthusiast, was an admiring disciple of Paracelsus, and boasted that he had irradiated the obscurity in which too many of the wonder-working recipes of that great philosopher were enveloped. His works were printed at Frankfurt in 1679. It would seem, from the following passage, that he was aware of the great influence of imagination, as well in the production as in the cure of diseases. If you wish to work prodigies, says he, abstract from the materiality of beings, increase the sum of spirituality in bodies, rouse the spirit from its slumbers. Unless you do one or other of these things, unless you combine the idea, you can never perform anything good or great. Here, in fact, lies the whole secret of magnetism and all delusions of a similar kind. Increase the spirituality. Rouse the spirit from its slumbers, or, in other words, work upon the imagination. Induce belief and blind confidence. 
and you may do anything. This passage, which is quoted with approbation by Monsieur Dupotet in a work, as strongly corroborative of the theory now advanced by the animal magnetists, is just the reverse. If they believe they can work all their wonders by the means so dimly shadowed forth by Maxwell, what becomes of the universal fluid pervading all nature, and which they pretend to pour into weak and diseased bodies from the tips of their fingers? Early in the 18th century, the attention of Europe was directed to a very remarkable instance of fanaticism, which has been claimed by the animal magnetists as a proof of their science. The convulsionaries of St. Medard, as they were called, assembled in great numbers round the tomb of their favourite saint, the Jansenist priest Paris, and taught one another how to fall into convulsions. They believed that St. Paris would cure all their infirmities, and the number of hysterical women and weak-minded persons of all descriptions that flocked to the tomb from far and near was so great as daily to block up all the avenues leading to it. Working themselves up to a pitch of excitement, they went off one after the other into fits, while some of them, still in apparent possession of all their faculties, voluntarily exposed themselves to sufferings which on ordinary occasions would have been sufficient to deprive them of life. The scenes that occurred were a scandal to civilization and to religion, a strange mixture of obscenity, absurdity, and superstition. While some were praying on bended knees at the shrine of St. Paris, others were shrieking and making the most hideous noises. The women especially exerted themselves. On one side of the chapel there might be seen a score of them, all in convulsions, while at another as many more, excited to a sort of frenzy, yielded themselves up to gross indecencies. Some of them took an insane delight in being beaten and trampled upon. One in particular, according to Montegra, whose account we quote, was so enraptured with this ill-usage that nothing but the hardest blows would satisfy her, while a fellow of Herculean strength was beating her with all his might with a heavy bar of iron. She kept continually urging him to renewed exertion. The harder he struck, the better she liked it, exclaiming all the while, Well done, brother, well done! Oh, how pleasant it is! What good you are doing me! Courage, my brother, courage! Strike harder, strike harder still! Another of these fanatics had, if possible, a still greater love for a beating. Carrie de Montgeron, who relates the circumstance, was unable to satisfy her with sixty blows of a large sledgehammer. He afterwards used the same weapon, with the same degree of strength, for the sake of experiment, and succeeded in battering a hole in a stone wall at the twenty-fifth stroke. Another woman, named Sonny, laid herself down on a red-hot brazier without flinching, and acquired for herself the nickname of the Salamander, while others, desirous of a more illustrious martyrdom, attempted to crucify themselves. Monsieur de Luz, in his critical history of animal magnetism, attempts to prove that this fanatical frenzy was produced by magnetism, and that these mad enthusiasts magnetized each other without being aware of it. As well might he insist that the fanaticism which tempts the Hindu bigot to keep his arms stretched in a horizontal position till the sinews wither, 
or his fingers closed upon his palms till the nails grow out of the backs of his hands, is also an effect of magnetism. For a period of sixty or seventy years, magnetism was almost wholly confined to Germany. Men of sense and learning devoted their attention to the properties of the lodestone, and one father Hell, a Jesuit, and professor of astronomy at the University of Vienna, rendered himself famous by his magnetic cures. About the year 1771 or 1772, he invented steel plates of a peculiar form, which he applied to the naked body as a cure for several diseases. In the year 1774, he communicated his system to Antony Mesmer. The latter improved upon the ideas of Father Hell, constructed a new theory of his own, and became the founder of animal magnetism. It has been the fashion among the enemies of the new delusion to decry Mesmer as an unprincipled adventurer, while his disciples have extolled him to the skies as a regenerator of the human race. In nearly the same words as the Rosicrucians applied to their founders, he has been called the discoverer of the secret which brings man into more intimate connection with his creator, the deliverer of the soul from the debasing trammels of the flesh, the man who enables us to set time at defiance and conquer the obstructions of space. A careful sifting of his pretensions and examination of the evidence brought forward to sustain them will soon show which opinion is the more correct. That the writer of these pages considers him in the light of a man who, deluding himself, was the means of deluding others, may be inferred from his finding a place in these volumes, and figuring among the Flamels, the Agrippas, the Borries, the Burmans, and the Cagliostros. He was born in May 1734, at Merzburg, in Swabia, and studied medicine at the University of Vienna. He took his degrees in 1766, and chose the influence of the planets on the human body as the subject of his inaugural dissertation. Having treated the matter quite in the style of the old astrological physicians, he was exposed to some ridicule, both then and afterwards. Even at this early period, some faint ideas of his great theory were germinating in his mind. He maintained in his dissertation that the sun, moon, and fixed stars mutually affect each other in their orbits, that they cause and direct in our earth a flux and reflux, not only in the sea, but in the atmosphere, and affect in a similar manner all organized bodies through the medium of a subtle and mobile fluid, which pervades the universe and associates all things together in mutual intercourse and harmony. This influence, he said, was particularly exercised on the nervous system, and produced two states which he called intention and remission, which seemed to him to account for the different periodical revolutions observable in several maladies. When in afterlife he met with Father Hell, he was confirmed by that person's observations in the truth of many of his own ideas. Having caused Hell to make him some magnetic plates, he determined to try experiments with them himself for his further satisfaction. He tried accordingly, and was astonished at his success. 
the faith of their wearers operated wonders with the metallic plates. Mesmer made due reports to Father Hell of all he had done, and the latter published them as the results of his own happy invention, and speaking of Mesmer as a physician whom he had employed to work under him. Mesmer took offence at being thus treated, considering himself a far greater personage than Father Hell. He claimed the invention as his own, accused Hell of a breach of confidence, and stigmatised him as a mean person, anxious to turn the discoveries of others to his own account. Hell replied, and a very pretty quarrel was the result, which afforded small talk for months to the literati of Vienna. Hell ultimately gained the victory. Mesmer, nothing daunted, continued to promulgate his views, till he stumbled at last upon the animal theory. One of his patients was a young lady, named Ersterline, who suffered under a convulsive malady. Her attacks were periodical, and attended by a rush of blood to the head, followed by delirium and syncope. These symptoms he soon succeeded in reducing under his system of planetary influence, and imagined he could foretell the periods of accession and remission. Having thus accounted satisfactorily to himself for the origin of the disease, the idea struck him that he could operate a certain cure if he could ascertain beyond doubt what he had long believed, that there existed between the bodies which compose our globe an action equally reciprocal and similar to that of the heavenly bodies, by means of which he could imitate artificially the periodical revolutions of the flux and reflux before mentioned. He soon convinced himself that this action did exist. When trying the metallic plates of Father Hell, he thought their efficacy depended on their form but he found afterwards that he could produce the same effects without using them at all, merely by passing his hands downwards towards the feet of the patient, even when at a considerable distance. This completed the theory of Mesmer. He wrote an account of his discovery to all the learned societies of Europe, soliciting their investigation. The Academy of Sciences at Berlin was the only one that answered him and their answer was anything but favourable to his system, or flattering to himself. Still he was not discouraged. He maintained to all who would listen to him that the magnetic matter, or fluid, pervaded all the universe, that every human body contained it, and could communicate the superabundance of it to another by an exertion of the will. Writing to a friend from Vienna, he said, I have observed that the magnetic is almost the same thing as the electric fluid, and that it may be propagated in the same manner by means of intermediate bodies. Steel is not the only substance adapted to this purpose. I have rendered paper, bread, wool, silk, stones, leather, glass, wood, men and dogs, in short, everything I touched, magnetic to such a degree that these substances produced the same effects as the lodestone on diseased persons. I have charged jars with magnetic matter in the same way as is done with electricity. Mesmer did not long find his residence at Vienna as agreeable as he wished. His pretensions were looked upon with contempt or indifference and the case of Mademoiselle Oesterlein 
brought him less fame than notoriety. He determined to change his sphere of action, and travelled into Swabia and Switzerland. In the latter country he met with the celebrated father Gassner, who, like Valentine Greatrax, amused himself by casting out devils, and healing the sick by merely laying hands upon them. At his approach, delicate girls fell into convulsions, and hypochondriacs fancied themselves cured. His house was daily besieged by the lame, the blind, and the hysteric. Mesmer at once acknowledged the efficacy of his cures, and declared that they were the obvious result of his own newly discovered power of magnetism. A few of the father's patients were forthwith subjected to the manipulations of Mesmer, and the same symptoms were induced. He then tried his hand upon some paupers in the hospitals of Bern and Zurich, and succeeded, according to his own account, but no other persons, in curing an ophthalmia and a gutta serena. With memorials of these achievements, he returned to Vienna in the hope of silencing his enemies, or at least forcing them to respect his newly acquired reputation and to examine his system more attentively. His second appearance in that capital was not more auspicious than the first. He undertook to cure a Mademoiselle Paradis, who was quite blind and subject to convulsions. He magnetized her several times, and then declared that she was cured. At least, if she was not, it was her fault, and not his. An eminent oculist of that day, named Bath, went to visit her, and declared that she was as blind as ever, while her family said she was as much subject to convulsions as before. Mesmer persisted that she was cured, like the French philosopher, he would not allow facts to interfere with his theory. He declared that there was a conspiracy against him, and that Mademoiselle Paradis, at the instigation of her family, feigned blindness in order to injure his reputation. The consequences of this pretended cure taught Mesmer that Vienna was not the sphere for him. Paris, the idle, the debauched, the pleasure-hunting, the novelty-loving, was the scene for a philosopher like him, and thither he repaired accordingly. He arrived at Paris in 1778, and began modestly by making himself and his theory known to the principal physicians. At first, his encouragement was but slight. He found people more inclined to laugh at than to patronise him. But he was a man who had great confidence in himself, and of a perseverance which no difficulties could overcome. He hired a sumptuous apartment, which he opened to all comers who chose to make trial of the new power of nature. Monsieur Dieslon, a physician of great reputation, became a convert, and from that time animal magnetism, or as some called it, mesmerism, became the fashion in Paris. The women were quite enthusiastic about it, and their admiring tattle wafted its fame through every grade of society. Mesmer was the rage, and high and low, rich and poor, credulous and unbelieving, all hastened to convince themselves of the power of this mighty magician who made such magnificent promises. Mesmer, who knew as well as any man living the influence of the imagination, determined that, on that score, 
nothing should be wanting to heighten the effect of the magnetic charm. In all Paris there was not a house so charmingly furnished as Monsieur Mesmer's. Richly stained glass shed a dim religious light on his spacious saloons, which were almost covered with mirrors. Orange blossoms scented all the air of his corridors. Incense of the most expensive kinds burned in antique vases on his chimney-pieces. Aeolian harps sighed melodious music from distant chambers, while sometimes a sweet female voice, from above or below, stole softly upon the mysterious silence that was kept in the house, and insisted upon from all visitors. "'Was ever anything so delightful?' cried all the Mrs. Wittitalees of Paris, as they thronged to his house in search of pleasant excitement. "'So wonderful!' said the pseudo-philosophers, who would believe anything if it were the fashion. "'So amusing!' said the worn-out debauchees, who had drained the cup of sensuality to its dregs, and who longed to see lovely women in convulsions, with the hope that they might gain some new emotions from the sight. The following was the mode of operation. In the centre of the saloon was placed an oval vessel, about four feet in its longest diameter, and one foot deep. In this were laid a number of wine bottles, filled with magnetised water, well corked up, and disposed in radii, with their necks outwards. Water was then poured into the vessel, so as just to cover the bottles, and filings of iron were thrown in occasionally to heighten the magnetic effect. The vessel was then covered with an iron cover, pierced through with many holes, and was called the baquet. From each hole issued a long movable rod of iron, which the patients were to apply to such parts of their bodies as were afflicted. Around this baquet, the patients were directed to sit, holding each other by the hand, and pressing their knees together as closely as possible, to facilitate the passage of the magnetic fluid from one to the other. Then came in the assistant magnetizers, generally strong, handsome young men, to pour into the patient from their fingertips fresh streams of the wondrous fluid. They embraced the patient between the knees, rubbed them gently down the spine and the course of the nerves, using gentle pressure upon the breasts of the ladies, and staring them out of countenance to magnetise them by the eye. All this time the most rigorous silence was maintained, with the exception of a few wild notes on the harmonica or the pianoforte, or the melodious voice of a hidden opera singer swelling softly at long intervals. Gradually, the cheeks of the ladies began to glow, their imaginations to become inflamed, and off they went, one after the other, in convulsive fits. Some of them sobbed and tore their hair, others laughed till the tears ran from their eyes, while others shrieked and screamed and yelled, till they became insensible altogether. This was the crisis of the delirium. In the midst of it, the chief actor made his appearance, waving his wand like Prospero, to work new wonders. Dressed in a long robe of lilac-coloured silk, richly embroidered with gold flowers, bearing in his hand a white magnetic rod, 
and with a look of dignity which would have sat well on an eastern caliph, he marched with solemn strides into the room. He awed the still sensible by his eye, and the violence of their symptoms diminished. He stroked the insensible with his hands upon the eyebrows and down the spine, traced figures upon their breast and abdomen with his long white wand, and they were restored to consciousness. They became calm, acknowledged his power, and said they felt streams of cold or burning vapour passing through their frames, according as he waved his wand or his fingers before them. It is impossible, says Monsieur Dupotet, to conceive the sensation which Mesmer's experiments created in Paris. No theological controversy in the earlier ages of the Catholic Church was ever conducted with greater bitterness. His adversaries denied the discovery, some calling him a quack, others a fool, and others again, like the Abbe Fiard, a man who had sold himself to the devil. His friends were as extravagant in their praise as his foes were in their censure. Paris was inundated with pamphlets upon the subject, as many defending as attacking the doctrine. At court the Queen expressed herself in favour of it, and nothing else was to be heard of in society. By the advice of Monsieur Dieslon, Mesmer challenged an examination of his doctrine by the faculty of medicine. He proposed to select twenty-four patients, twelve of whom he would treat magnetically, leaving the other twelve to be treated by the faculty according to the old and approved methods. He also stipulated that, to prevent disputes, the government should nominate certain persons who were not physicians to be present at the experiments, and that the object of the inquiry should be not how these effects were produced, but whether they were really efficacious in the cure of any disease. The faculty objected to limit the inquiry in this manner, and the proposition fell to the ground. Mesmer now wrote to Marie Antoinette, with the view of securing her influence in obtaining for him the protection of government. He wished to have a chateau and its lands given to him, with a handsome yearly income, that he might be enabled to continue his experiments at leisure, untroubled by the persecution of his enemies. He hinted the duty of governments to support men of science, and expressed his fear that if he met no more encouragement, he should be compelled to carry his great discovery to some other land more willing to appreciate him. In the eyes of your majesty, said he, four or five hundred thousand francs applied to a good purpose are of no account. The welfare and happiness of your people are everything. My discovery ought to be received and rewarded with a munificence worthy of the monarch to whom I shall attach myself. The government at last offered him a pension of twenty thousand francs, and the cross of the Order of St. Michael, if he had made any discovery in medicine, and would communicate it to physicians nominated by the king. The latter part of the proposition was not agreeable to Mesmer. He feared the unfavourable report of the king's physicians, and, breaking off the negotiation, spoke of his disregard of money, and his wish to have his discovery at once recognised by the government. He then retired to Spa, in a fit of disgust, 
upon pretence of drinking the waters for the benefit of his health. After he had left Paris, the faculty of medicine called upon M. Deslon for the third and last time to renounce the doctrine of animal magnetism, or be expelled from their body. M. Deslon, so far from doing this, declared that he had discovered new secrets and solicited further examination. A royal commission of the Faculty of Medicine was, in consequence, appointed on the 12th of March, 1784, seconded by another commission of the Académie des Sciences, to investigate the phenomena and report upon them. The first commission was composed of the principal physicians of Paris, while among the eminent men comprised in the latter were Benjamin Franklin, Lavoisier, and Bailey, the historian of astronomy. Mesmer was formally invited to appear before this body, but absented himself from day to day upon one pretense or another. M. Deslon was more honest, because he thoroughly believed in the phenomena, which it is to be questioned if Mesmer ever did, and regularly attended to the sittings and performed experiments. Bailey has thus described the scenes of which he was a witness in the course of this investigation. The sick persons, arranged in great numbers and in several rows around the backy, receive the magnetism, by all these means, by the iron rods which convey it to them from the backy, by the cords wound round their bodies, by the connection of the thumb, which conveys to them the magnetism of their neighbours, and by the sounds of a pianoforte, or of an agreeable voice, diffusing the magnetism in the air. The patients were also directly magnetised by means of the finger and wand of the magnetizer moved slowly before their faces, above or behind their heads, and on the diseased parts, always observing the direction of the holes. The magnetizer acts by fixing his eyes on them. But above all, they are magnetised by the application of his hands, and the pressure of his fingers on the hypochondries and on the regions of the abdomen, an application often continued for a long time, sometimes for several hours. Meanwhile, the patients in their different conditions present a very varied picture. Some are calm, tranquil, and experience no effect. Others cough, spit, feel slight pains, local or general heat, and have sweatings. Others again are agitated and tormented with convulsions. These convulsions are remarkable in regard to the number affected with them, to their duration and force. As soon as one begins to be convulsed, several others are affected. The commissioners have observed some of these convulsions last more than three hours. They are accompanied with expectorations of a muddy, viscous water, brought away by violent efforts. Sometimes streaks of blood have been observed in this fluid. These convulsions are characterized by the precipitous, involuntary motion of all the limbs, and of the whole body, by the contraction of the throat, by the leaping motions of the hypochondria and the epigastrium, by the dimness and wandering of the eyes, by piercing shrieks, tears, sobbing, and immoderate laughter. They are preceded or followed by a state of languor or reverie, a kind of depression, and sometimes drowsiness. The smallest sudden noise occasions a shuddering, and it was remarked that the change of measure in the airs played on the pianoforte had a great influence on the patients. A quicker motion, 
a livelier melody, agitated them more, and renewed the vivacity of their convulsions. Nothing is more astonishing than the spectacle of these convulsions. One who has not seen them can form no idea of them. The spectator is as much astonished at the profound repose of one portion of the patients as at the agitation of the rest, at the various accidents which are repeated, and at the sympathies which are exhibited. Some of the patients may be seen devoting their attention exclusively to one another, rushing towards each other with open arms, smiling, soothing, and manifesting every symptom of attachment and affection. All are under the power of the magnetizer. It matters not in what state of drowsiness they may be. The sound of his voice, a look, a motion of his hand, brings them out of it. Among the patients in convulsions, there are always observed a great many women, and very few men. These experiments lasted for about five months. They had hardly commenced before Mesmer, alarmed at the loss both of fame and profit, determined to return to Paris. Some patients of rank and fortune, enthusiastic believers in his doctrine, had followed him to Spa. One of them named Burgas proposed to open a subscription for him of one hundred shares at one hundred louis each, on condition that he would disclose his secret to the subscribers, who were to be permitted to make whatever use they pleased of it. Mesmer readily embraced the proposal, and such was the infatuation that the subscription was not only filled in a few days, but exceeded by no less a sum than one hundred and forty thousand francs. With this fortune he returned to Paris, and recommenced his experiments, while the royal commission continued theirs. His admiring pupils, who had paid him so handsomely for his instructions, spread his fame over the country, and established in all the principal towns of France societies of harmony, for trying experiments, and curing all diseases by means of magnetism. Some of these societies were a scandal to morality, being joined by profligate men of depraved appetites, who took a disgusting delight in witnessing young girls in convulsions. Many of the pretended magnetizers were asserted at the time to be notorious libertines, who took that opportunity of gratifying their passions. At last the commissioners published their report, which was drawn up by the illustrious and unfortunate Bailey. For clearness of reasoning and strict impartiality it has never been surpassed. After detailing the various experiments made and their results, they came to the conclusion that the only proof advanced in support of animal magnetism was the effects it produced on the human body that those effects could be produced without passes or other magnetic manipulations, that all these manipulations and passes and ceremonies never produce any effect at all, if employed without the patient's knowledge, and that therefore imagination did, and animal magnetism did not, account for the phenomena. This report was the ruin of Mesmer's reputation in France. He quitted Paris shortly after, with the 340,000 francs which had been subscribed by his admirers, 
and retired to his own country, where he died in 1815, at the advanced age of 81. But the seeds he had sown, fructified of themselves, nourished and brought to maturity by the kindly warmth of popular credulity. Imitators sprang up in France, Germany, and England, more extravagant than their master, and claiming powers for the new science which its founder had never dreamt of. Among others, Cagliostro made good use of the delusion in extending his claims to be considered a master of the occult sciences. But he made no discoveries worthy to be compared to those of the Marquis de Puisegur and the Chevalier Barbarin, honest men who began by deceiving themselves before they deceived others. End of chapter 7 Part 2